Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good evening, church. It's good to see you all back here uh, again or here for the first time, depending upon what your day has been like on this great Lord's Day. Uh, we began uh, kind of a two-part sermon this morning, again in our series about worship, uh, about the five acts of worship. And just to get us caught up to speed of where we left off this morning, uh, one of the things that we noticed was that private worship is uh, something of a foundation for the worship that we offer to God when we come together as a congregation. And we should have uh, active worship lives at home by ourselves, uh, family worship together as families in our homes, and that be building blocks uh, to develop our relationship with God. We learn how to worship. We learn how to pray. We learn how to study, maybe even to sing as we worship God together in our homes or alone in our homes and devote ourselves to Him day by day. And Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, as well as other places, that we are to be people cultivating a life of worship outside of the assembly. That being the case, there are well more than five ways that somebody could worship God. There may be a thousand different ways somebody could offer worship to God. We talked about the fact uh, that uh, the five acts of worship, when we talk about that, are the five acts that we can specifically read about in the New Testament uh, that the church is called to offer to God when we come together as a congregation. And so in your private worship, you may worship God a lot of ways. But when we come together as a family of God's people, we want to offer worship that we can point to the Bible and say book, chapter, and verse, this is why we do what we do. And there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, but uh, one of those is... Uh, let me get past that. There we go. One of those is from, uh, we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10 together this morning. Uh, just read that as our scripture reading again tonight. Uh, that we're called to have unity, to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I want to bring your attention to Romans 14 verses 1 and 4. Uh, here the Apostle Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now Romans 14 is a Bible passage, the importance of which can hardly be overstated. And it is a Bible passage, the understanding of which throughout Christendom, uh, well, is not always so great. Uh, I think a lot of folks struggle with Romans 14 because... Of, of the different uh, hermeneutics or rules of interpretations that they have been taught, that they have accepted, and that they're trying to interpret the Bible with. But, but if you uh, follow a hermeneutic or a, a set of principles interpret of interpretation that make you come to Romans 14 and say, what on earth is Paul talking about here? You might want to look into your hermeneutics. And again, for those that for whom that may be a new word, hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, rules we use to interpret the Bible in order to understand where the boundaries are, where the commandments of, of God are, 
uh, around our lives. And uh, I've talked about this before, and I'm not going to go into it at length tonight, but if you have accepted a hermeneutic that says that uh, all silence is prohibitive, that if you can't find and mention something in the Bible that it's automatically then wrong and sinful and ruled out without a positive mention, you won't be able to make sense of Romans 14. Because that's not actually the way that the Bible teaches us to interpret it. Silence is silence. If there is actually nothing said about a subject in the Bible at all, then silence is absolutely 100% permissive. It's not a something God has made a law about, and therefore we don't have a right to bind where God is not bound. All right? And so there are folks, I understand what they're trying to do, that are teaching the prohibitive nature of the silence of the Scriptures. I understand what they're doing, but they're, they're misunderstanding how the Scriptures are to be understood. Now, specificity is binding. When God has specified one thing, all other things are excluded by that specificity. That is, is absolutely something that we need to pay attention to as we study the Bible. But if you've accepted this idea that silence is prohibitive, you won't be able to make much sense of Romans 14 because Paul didn't believe that. And that's not the hermeneutic that is informing his Holy Spirit-guided writing in, in, in uh, Romans 14. So let me explain it to you, just a two-minute explanation here. The Bible has positive commandments. We can summarize them by saying, thou shalt kind of statements. Doesn't have to be in that terms. It doesn't have to say thou shalt every time there's a positive commandment, but it's a positive statement. God says, do this, you must do this, you can do this. Those are positive statements of authorization or commandments. On the other hand, Bible has negative statements uh, of command or requirement, and we could summarize that by saying thou shalt not statements. God says, thou shalt not do this, or don't do this, or you can't do this, or the Bible can work that in a lot of ways. But we recognize that something is being forbidden. Everything in between those two things is a Romans 14 issue. Let me repeat, every last issue, period, that is between those two things is a Romans 14 issue. And that's what Paul is communicating in Romans 14. How do we deal with issues that we may have a conscience uh, issue about that the Bible doesn't say you must and the Bible doesn't say you can't. Romans 14 is the answer to that question. And so when we think about the worship wars, I mentioned that this morning, that for the past several decades, the church has been engaged in this so-called worship war where folks have been saying we need to take worship in a, in a contemporary direction. In other words, we need to look to the world. We need to see what people are used to, their culture in the world, the kind of music they're listening to in the world, the kind of entertainment that they like, the kind of speakers that they like in the world. And we need to make our worship services into seeker-sensitive services. So basically, we're going to make people come into the church and they're going to say, oh wow, this is just like the world that I live in outside the church, except Jesus is in it. That, that's, the, that's the contemporary approach uh, uh, to, to the worship wars. On the other hand, there are folks like me, and hopefully y'all, who say the Bible needs to inform how we worship God. I don't care what the world does. I don't care what kind of music the world listens to. I don't care what kind of speakers the world likes to listen to or the kind of language that they like to listen to those speakers say. Uh, and it's, and I'm, we're not being callous when we say that. It's not a lack of care for people in the world. It's not disdain. It's not animosity. It's not anger. It's just loyalty to Jesus. And it's the affirmation that the Word of God contains all things that pertain to life and godliness, as Peter asserts in 2 Peter chapter 1. And so we want to worship in a way that we can say the Bible teaches us to worship this way and this is why we do it. That being the case, the Bible doesn't say 
everything that possibly could be said about worship. There are some things the Bible says that must be involved with our worship. There are some things the Bible says that absolutely cannot be involved with our worship. And then there are some Romans 14 issues with regard to worship. Some things that the Bible doesn't require and some things that the Bible doesn't condemn. Romans 14 and 15 is supposed to teach us to be people who will not judge our brothers or sisters when we have a disagreement in this middle ground of things that God has not legislated about. But guess what? The church is full of people, human beings, that have not yet been resurrected and made, like the Lord Jesus, superior to sin. And in any church, there are folks at all kinds of different uh, places along their journey of growth. They're brand new Christians that uh, really don't, don't know much at all about God's will. They just know Jesus is Lord and they've, they've given Him their lives and maybe they've got hang-ups, you know, from their life in the world, things that they haven't yet been able to work out through the process of growth. Uh, on the other hand, you've got folks that have been Christians for decades and serious Bible students and been involved with ministries in the church in so many different ways and they're so strong in the Lord and have such a great understanding. And then there are folks in the middle of those two extremes that uh, are in a process of growing. And maybe they have already humbled themselves and, and learned the principle of loving their neighbor as themselves and regarding their brothers and sisters as more important than themselves in the Philippians 2 fashion. Or maybe it's a brother or sister that is a genuine Christian, really loves the Lord, wants to be right, but, but they just haven't quite figured out how to disagree yet without being hostile and divisive. And so as a church, as a congregation, it is wise for us to simplify what we do when we come together in such a way that we don't do, even if it's something that might be okay, might be a Romans 14 issue. If we don't have a specific, thus saith the Lord, authorizing this act, we risk causing a brother or a sister to stumble because they, they may have a conscience issue about this thing. Maybe it's the weaker brother we read about in this passage. It's like, well, I don't know if that's right. I've never done that. We've, I've never experienced that. I've never heard of that. And, and so this, this brother or sister that is trying to follow the Lord with all of his or her heart is put into a position to where now they've got to wrestle with something that the Word of God doesn't require that they wrestle with. And it is very sad. If you get into reading about church history, much there, there's way too much of church history that has been issues where folks that maybe even they're right, maybe they're the stronger brother that understands the liberties they've got in Christ and they're determined they're going to bring something into the practice of the church, whether it's the worship service or whether it's a method that they go about doing the work or whatever it may happen to be. And they're determined, hey, well, I've got every right biblically to do this and bring it in. And, and you backward folks, if y'all can't get on the bandwagon, well, then you just leave and go to church somewhere else. And I, I wish that that had never happened in the history of the church. Let's make it closer to home. I wish that had never happened in the churches of Christ. Oh, but it has. Many, many, many many times. Brothers and sisters, not all of us understand really the history of how we, we came to be what we are and to do what we do. The churches of Christ as we are here in the world today, uh, we claim to be, and rightly so, just the same church that Jesus established and the apostles proclaimed in the first century. When we talk about church of Christ, we mean the same thing that Paul meant in Romans 16, 16. That's all we're trying to be. 
Now, we're trying to, to, to be that church and to invite everybody that believes in Jesus to simply sink into union with the one church that Jesus established. To drop denominational names, to get rid of creed books, uh, to, to allow the Bible to guide us in every way. And we're trying to create a, a, a way of being together as the church that every believer in Jesus who believes in the authority of Scripture can be, in, can be on board with with a clean conscience without having to wrestle with some issues that may be a Romans 14 issue that they don't know how to deal with. And that's why our brotherhood has chosen only to do the five acts that we can specifically read about in the New Testament when we come together for worship. It's not because we're saying if there's a church out there that does something different and is at peace and in harmony and loving Jesus and accepting the authority of Scripture. It's not that we're saying that they're all apostates and that they are uh, falling away from the Lord and they are damned and headed to hell. That's, if we're saying that, we are misunderstanding why we're doing what we're doing and we're making a judgment that Scripture does not authorize us to make. And I will repeat that a thousand times. You're making a decision that you're not authorized to make if that's the way that you're interpreting this because you will not find a passage in the New Testament that says if someone doesn't understand worship perfectly, they're lost and going to hell. It is not there. It is not there. Now, why then do we do only these five acts? Because it respects 1 Corinthians 1.10, creating a biblically-based environment where every believer in Jesus can worship with a clean conscience without any fear of division or a violated conscience, because it respects the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus in John 17. When the night he was betrayed, he prayed to God the Father that all of his disciples, all of his followers, not just in that generation, but everybody who would be converted because of the testimony of the apostles, and that includes everybody in this room, that we would be perfectly one, just as he and the Father are one in unity. We do it because we respect Romans 14, the first part of Romans 15. We're not as a congregation of people going to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother or sister and force them because the whole rest of the church is doing something that they may believe is right to do something that they can't find authorization for in Scripture and thus violate their conscience. And so we, we observe, we participate in, we offer to God the five acts of worship that we specifically read about in the New Testament every time we come together. And with a clean conscience and a smile on our face and joy, we say to everyone that we come across in our lives at Laverne Church of Christ, and I hope all of our sister churches uh, would say the same thing. At Laverne Church of Christ, we offer simple New Testament worship. We can point to Bible passages for everything that we do, for everything that we do. And therefore, we're not putting a stumbling block in anybody's way. We're offering worship to God that we know for a fact that He accepts, that He appreciates, and we know that it is going to accomplish the work that God intends to accomplish in our lives through worship because we are doing just what the Bible tells us to do. And I hope that everybody can get behind that simple idea because it is a beautiful one. It really is a loving way to follow the Bible and to be God's people. So let's talk about these five acts just for a few minutes tonight. We're going to talk about prayer, offering prayer to God. We're going to talk about the ministry of the Word, that is reading Scripture, teaching Scripture, preaching the Word. We're going to talk about communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper that we observe together on the first day of the week. Talk about giving very briefly, and we're going to talk about singing hymns. Not going to spend a lot of time with each one. 
but just want to look at a passage or two in each case. So if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along with me. I've chosen 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 14, to talk about praying together when we come together as a church. Paul begins 1 Timothy 2 in verse 1 with these words, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. To summarize that, every single kind of prayer and every single motive for prayer, Paul says you do that for everybody. Everybody in the whole world. There ought to be some time in our prayer lives, public or private, in which we pray literally for every human being on the planet. One of the things that I've prayed about many times, just as an example, is that God would see to it that every single person on earth that comes to an age of accountability would have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus proclaimed ably at least one time. And it's sad that that's not true. Not everybody on the world does hear the gospel ably preached even one time. It is not fair at all. And man, we ought to be so grateful to God that we are people who have had the opportunity to hear the gospel preached over and over and over and over again. And in Western civilization, even as we see so many people in our culture, you know, moving away from Christianity and sociologists are saying we're in a post-Christian era, our neighbors Many of them have heard the gospel preached more times than they deserve to hear it. Because until everybody hears it once, nobody deserves to hear it twice. If you do hear it twice, God has graced you. He has graced you. And we need to pray for this. Continuing though, I'm taking too much time with this passage. <laughs> for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Paul says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm not lying. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Verse 8, here are the instructions then and how it is to be done. I desire therefore that the men, the Greek word andros, which means males, adult males, husbands and single men alike, adult males, is what that Greek word means. I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner in our assemblies also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness of good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So this, Bible, this passage tells us that we are certainly in our own lives to pray for everybody. But when we come together as a church, God wants holy men, He wants Christian men to stand before the church and lead the church in prayer together before God. And in any aspect of leadership, any role that we would call leadership, when we come together as a congregation, Christian men are to do that leading. Everyone is to be involved, men and women alike, and children too, are to worship God with their whole hearts, putting their minds into everything that we're doing together. This passage teaches us it is the brothers who are supposed to lead these prayers. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Bible, the ministry of the Word. Same book, 1 Timothy. Look over chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes to Timothy the young preacher and he says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Some of your versions might say, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Same thing, doctrine, teaching, 
teaching doctrine. All right, so when we come together as a church, those who are qualified, those who are capable, those who are set apart to preach and teach are supposed to do that. We're supposed to see to it that we're reading the Word of God together in public when we come together as a congregation. And some exhortation needs to be done. Exhortation is a word that means strong urging for people to do what is right. So when we're teaching the Word, when the Word is being read and the preacher or teacher is standing up and trying to bring out the meaning and explain it, you know, we need to have preachers or teachers that will strongly urge us to obey what it is that we're reading or hear, hearing being read. That's exhortation. You ought to do what the Bible says. That's exhortation. And to teaching explaining, helping people to understand what the Word means and what the doctrines are that the Word is delivering to us. Paul tells Timothy to give attention to this when we come together to worship. And so the Bible needs to definitely be at the center of our worship services when we come together. Now I'm not going to say a whole lot about communion because that is going to be our theme next week in our special emphasis. But I do want to read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Uh, verses 23 through 26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, first of all, a few things here. The bread is the body of Christ. We could say it represents the body of Christ, and I would say that's a fair interpretation of what's being said. And lots of times brothers say this bread represents the body of Christ. That's fine. Jesus just said, this is my body. We're supposed to, to discern the body of the Lord in this bread. And there are two ways we do that. First of all, when we partake of this bread, don't do it mindlessly. Don't do it mindlessly. When you partake of the bread, think about what it means. Jesus came in the flesh. The Son of God became human. And he gave himself in the body to die on the cross in order to pay the price of our sins. And the result of that is that we're not only saved in a spiritual sense. We don't just fly off to heaven when we die, and that's the end of the story, as, as even some Christians believe. But we look forward to the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, when, when our bodies will rise from the grave and our saved spirits will be reunited with them to live forever in, in glory with the Lord, death having been undone. That's what was accomplished by Jesus dying in the body, being buried, and raising bodily from the dead. Colossians 3, by the way, tells us that Jesus has ascended to heaven, and he has not left his body behind. In him, present tense, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. There is one embodied human being in heaven right now. It is Jesus our Lord at the right hand of the Father. When we partake of the bread, we are, we're, we're celebrating this, we're being reminded of this, we're teaching this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And the, the, the cup represents, or is, he says, my blood. Matthew 26, Jesus says, this is the blood of the, my blood of the new covenant shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. And I like to think when I partake of communion every Sunday, I like to repeat that passage to myself and say a special word of thanks to God that I am included in that group of many whose sins have been forgiven by the washing of Christ's blood. 
And when we come together on the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7, we recognize there that's when the early church did it. And again, we want to be able to point to a book, chapter, and verse for everything we do so that we can have a worship service that any believer in Jesus can participate in with all of their hearts and souls and minds without any fear of a conscience issue. So we partake of communion on the first day of the week, just like the ancient church did, Acts 20 and verse 7. And we do it, how often does the first day of the week come? <laughs> every week. And so we take a communion every week, because that's how often the first day of the week comes. Okay, moving on then to giving. Uh, this is what we're going to talk more about next week. I think I said that about communion. But our, our special emphasis next Sunday is on giving. And so I'm not going to say a lot about this. I just want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. So listen to the Word of God here, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now, you can read this passage and see that, well, all of the letters or the epistles are called occasional letters, meaning that there was an occasion in the ancient world that gave rise to the writing of it. And there's a specific situation. If you read through the book of Acts as well as Paul's letters, you will see that there was a period of time in which the brethren in Judea were suffering uh, because uh, of a combination of famine and persecution. And so the brothers and sisters throughout the Greek-speaking world, the Gentile world that had become Christians, wanted to help to support their Jewish brothers. And so collections were being taken up. And Paul didn't want to have to come to town in Corinth and uh, have the elders of the church come around and knock on every door in the city of the brethren and say, hey, it's time to pony up. <laughs> and so he gave this commandment by the Holy Spirit that they were to give when they came together every first day of the week. And that was to be set aside into what we would call a treasury, a church treasury, so that when the time came for those funds to be used, they would already be there and ready. Now, you know, we've got brothers and sisters in Judea, and if they were to fall in hard times, I would hope we'd want to help them. But this, this presents to us a pattern, so to speak, or a principle of how wise church leadership is to be done. And so there are always going to be needs that are going to be arising for us to do the work of the Lord with money. And so Paul commanded in this passage that the collections be taken up on the first day of the week in order that the leadership of the church would have those funds in place when the time arises. Now, I, I wish I had more time to talk about what 2 Corinthians teaches us about how to give, but considering next Sunday we're going to focus on that theme, we'll talk about that then, Lord willing. So let's talk about singing. Last but not least, let's talk about singing. Now, uh, singing praise to God is as old as worship. When we read the law of Moses, we read about special instructions about how uh, singing was to be done. Uh, when David became king, he put the Levites into special orders of singers in the temple worship. And, and so the singing of hymns is, is just about as old as the race. And, of course, the book of Psalms began to be collected and written uh, at least a thousand years before the, the birth of Christ. And so the, there's an ancient collection of hymns that we have right here in our Bible. And many of the hymns we sing when we come together are just psalms that have been, you know, put, put to music, put to notes so that we can sing them together. And most of our other hymns are certainly being modeled after 
the kinds of hymns that we see in the Psalms and the principles we learn there. There are two main passages that we look to in the New Testament to inform what we do when we come together to sing praises. And those are Ephesians 5, the second part of verse 18 through 19, and Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Now you can look at those separately in your Bible if you'd like to, but I've combined those passages here so we can read them all together just on one screen. Paul says to the church, be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's Ephesians 5, second part of verse 18 and 19. Now we go to Colossians 3, beginning in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so we see in these two passages, uh, well, enough teaching to teach us the importance of singing hymns together, that it's not just something we do because we like it, although I think we do, but we do it because this is something that is positively commanded by God through the, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul. He says, when you, co- when you come together as a church, sing hymns together. And he gives us purposes for our worship and song. First of all, we are to make melody to the Lord with our hearts. We're worshiping God when we sing praises together as a congregation. God hears our voices. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about when we come together and we're singing that God is hearing your voice? He's accepting your singing as worship. Isn't that a pleasant thought? By the way, if you think, oh, no, I don't sing very well. (laughs) Well, God's the one that made your voice, and so he's okay with it. If he wanted you to be able to sing better, he'd have made you able to sing better. He just wants you to sing. And, And he doesn't need your praise, brothers and sisters. He doesn't need it. He seeks it, and he accepts it when it's offered with a pure heart. But you get more out of opening up your soul to sing to God than he gets out of it. He needs nothing. You need him in every way. And expressing that relationship, just expressing your adoration to him is such an important part of our lives. And we we dare not underestimate how important it is. But there is a second and equal purpose for our singing. Colossians teaches us this plainly, that it is a part of our teaching ministry. That's why it's important that our songs be biblically sound in the doctrine that they communicate. Because, man, I will tell you this, I learned a lot growing up from the songs that we sang. I still do. Our children are listening. The songs may provoke their hearts, especially at their young ages, even more than the sermon does sometimes, which may be well over some of their heads. But they'll listen to the songs, and they'll hear those words, and it will start to shape their minds, their hearts. It'll start to create a biblical worldview in their minds. And brothers and sisters, there is nothing more important than that. And so our worship and song is extremely important. And so we've looked at these five acts of public Christian worship together, and I hope the lessons have made sense and maybe helped you to understand some of the purposes and some of the issues that are involved with that. Of course, we can have whole series on this and get into greater detail, but we want to make sure that we're not divisive. We want to make sure that we are proud 
of what we're doing together as the Lord's church and putting together worship services that we know for a fact are scriptural and put no stumbling block before anybody's consciences. And we need to make sure as individual worshipers, we're worshiping God sincerely with our hearts, looking to the instruction that scripture gives us about these acts of worship, trying to offer God worship according to the teaching of his word. If we do that, brothers and sisters, we have the ability to go home every Sunday night knowing that we have pleased the Lord. And that's the best feeling in the world. And not only so, we get to go home happy. We got to spend some time with those of like precious faith. And we were together. We were together in the congregation, in the family of God, worshiping the one who died for us, who has saved us, who's given us every good thing we've ever had. And has promised us so much more that it's unthinkable in the age to come. Why would we not want to come together with those who agree, those who trust in the Lord like we do, and worship that God. It's the best thing in the world. This evening, if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, you can't worship him acceptably. You've got to be washed in his blood, free from sin, to become a saint that the Lord will accept worship from. And so if you've reached an age of accountability and you've not named Jesus as your Lord and Savior and obeyed the commandment to repent of your sins and be baptized, then, hey, the water's ready. You can do it tonight. Tonight, if you're a baptized believer that needs our prayers, front pews are open. Come, so we get to stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.